What's going on, Godspeak? How you doing? Yeah, all right. Some of you are good. Some of you, you don't know yet. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, if I haven't met you yet, um, I'm Zach, one of the pastors here, and it's my pleasure to worship alongside you guys and and learn about our Lord alongside you guys. And uh, I'm just, I'm incredibly blessed to call myself uh, your brother in Christ. And so, super excited. We're going to be closing up our series on the true gospel. Uh, So if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. While you turn there, uh, I'll explain, um, if for those of you that haven't been a part of this series for the past three weeks, oh yes, if you, if you need a Bible, raise your hand nice and high if you need a Bible. You do need a Bible, by the way. You do need one. Raise your hand nice and high if you need one. As you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, we have been going through uh, a bunch of false gospels that we run into in our society and how the true gospel measures up to them. Uh, Pastor Mark and I, we've been very adamant on not uh, demeaning or diminishing um, any of the, uh, of the false gospels in so much as we, we really want to elevate the true gospel. We want to elevate the true gospel because if we have a sound and solid foundation in what the true gospel is, no false gospel can get us. All right? No false gospel can take hold of us. And so we, we've been... We've been making sure to reiterate again and again and again the trueness and the, and, and the most amazing aspects of our gospel. We line that up with some false gospels of today, but in reality, man, a solid foundation in God's word and what the gospel articulates is what's going to get us through all of the false gospels that are thrown our way today in our workplaces, in our families, even and in our colleges and high schools, all of these things. And so, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you'll read with me, or read along with me, you don't have to read out loud, that'll just be weird, you know. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus that the one we, other than the one we proclaimed, Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you may do well to put up with it. This is God's word. You guys ready? Yeah? You guys ready? All right. Lord, we we, we pray to you. Father, we recognize your, your sovereignty. God, we recognize that you alone are holy, you alone are good, God, and any good thing about us is is simply your grace upon us. Father, I thank you that you've loved us individually. You have loved us, God, not, not just as a collective whole, but individually you, you seek our hearts. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would seek our hearts tonight. Father, some of us may learn something entirely different than the person next to us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us all uniquely. Father, I pray that I would not be exempt from learning new things about you tonight. Father, you know that I am weak. You know that I am um, burdened. God, and I just pray that you would speak loudly into all of our lives. God, that your strength may be known. Anything that is said of me would be forgotten quickly, but anything that is said of you would be remembered and placed upon our hearts for all of eternity. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's name alone that we pray. Amen. 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 
And so we, we've gone through this uh, through the past weeks. Uh, this is our fourth week going through 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, where he says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve in the garden, that you would be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The simplicity of the gospel. I'm afraid that as Adam and Eve were deceived in the garden, you too would be deceived. And so we've been learning in the past week, what was the main deception that Adam and Eve went through? It wasn't, hey, eat an apple. Right? It it wasn't, hey, I've made all of these things, but don't touch this. Oh, you touched it. Sucks. Right? What they gave into was when, when, when the serpent came and deceived Eve, he first of all, he questioned God's word. Did God really say that you can't have anything? Did God really say that you can't have anything in the garden? Already implying that through, you know, by misconstruing God's word, implying to Adam and Eve that God does not want what's best for you. Or that God is holding something back from you. And so Adam and Eve, in this, in this deception, they gave into the lie that, that Satan told them, which is, oh, well, well, God, of course God doesn't want you to eat, because if you did, you would be like him. You would be like God. Adam and Eve enticed with this idea that they get to be God, that they get to have this higher knowledge of who God is, and enticed by this idea. They gave in. Oh, I get to be like God. Sin at its root, at its core, guys, is you get to be your own God. Sin, pride at its core, every wrong thing that we have ever done at its very core is saying, I get to be the dictator of my own life. I get to be the author of my own story. I'm going to decide what to do. I don't have to submit to anybody. I get to make my own rules. At its core, every sin is you get to be like God. And Satan has used this lie in every single generation leading up to ours. And we've gone through the false gospels. We've gone through Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. We've gone through Christian science. And this week, I was supposed to teach about Unitarianism and Universalism. That, that, that was going to be uh, kind, of, kind of our finale. And as I was studying Universalism and Unitarianism, and I was reading the doctrines, it's a doctrine that rejects the deity of Christ as God, as all the other religions do as well, as all the other false gospels will. They, they seek to take Christ off of his throne and place him in equality with humanity. And we'll learn about why. The human heart does that later on. They say that the spirit indwells in all people and that the gospel is simply to love. This allows other walks and religious entities to be absorbed into Unitarianism. Unitarianism and universalism, they they are so open and accepting of other doctrines and other religions that it actually, there's, there's no real centrality to their denomination. There's no centrality to their religion. It's just anyone who wants to join can come. And so as a result, it was, it, was, it was very hard, and there's no formal hierarchical church like the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Christian scientists. There was no real a formal thing that I can look at. Now, there's examples of different churches that I can look at. But as I was studying the formal writings, 
as I was studying anything that I could, um, especially some uh, writing, uh, writings by William Ellery Channing, um, the Unitarian Christianity, it was written in 1819. He said this, There is one God, and that Jesus Christ is a being distinct from and inferior to God. I now proceed to another point on which we lay still greater stress. We believe in moral perfection of God. We consider no part of theology so important as that which treats of God's moral character. And we value our views of Christianity chiefly as they assert his amiable and venerable attributes. Unitarians, like other false gospels, will seek to take Christ off of the throne. All false gospels have this in common. They take Christ off of his throne. They reject his deity so that they might be there themselves. Now, they would never express this formally. So no false gospel is going to say, we're God too, right? No false gospel is going to say, no, no. You see, here's the thing. We want to take Christ off of his throne so that we can be on the throne. Now, no false gospel would say that because they wouldn't then claim to be a gospel. You see, the name of Jesus is very, very, very important. The name of Jesus is very important to manipulate Christians into understanding false gospels. They need to keep his name, but they're going to tweak at his deity. They'll keep his name so that they can still be called Christians, so you and I will accept them. But they will reject all things pointing towards Christ's deity. It happens because Jesus came... Guys, we, we, we like to take Jesus off of his throne because Jesus came and defined what is holy and what is not holy. Jesus clearly came and defined what is holy and what is not holy. He did so by going to the Old Testament and getting to the heart of the scriptures. He interpreted scripture in a way where it drew a definitive line in the sand. These are God's people. These are not God's people. Jesus drew that definitive line. He actually says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus said so himself, if you are not mine, if you are not with me, you are against me. So it's not, it's not like you can reject Christ's deity and his teachings, but still be on the same team as him, which many gospels would tell you is true. So Jesus is saying, you can't reject my teachings and kind of still be cool with me, right? You can't pick and choose what you want to believe in scripture and then still be okay. Whoever is not with me is against me. Now, guys, you see, many of you, I would assume, haven't been to a Unitarian or Universalist church. Some of you might have, right? Some of you might have. But, but I would say, guys, that this type of theology, this type of understanding of who God is, though people might not claim to be Unitarian or Universalist, that's kind of, it's kind of a, a very loose term anyways. Unitarians themselves will tell you that, that there's a lot of people that are a part of our church that really don't call themselves Unitarians anyways. It's kind of just a, you know, kind of just an all, like, just define it how you will. But I would say that the concept, the concept of a good and powerful and loving God without any obedience to him, is the prevailing doctrine of our generation. 
You don't, they don't have to be called anything specific, but I would say wanting to accept that there's a loving and holy and amazing God who has a plan for your life and everything happens for a reason, but you really don't have to listen to anything he says. He's kind of just good, and if we just try to be as good as we possibly can, we'll all get to heaven. That is the prevailing, the prevailing worldview of our generation. We just kind of want to all believe, all right, yeah, I, I believe in a God, but I don't, I don't believe in what he says. I believe in a God, but man, do I really have to do what scripture tells me to do? I believe in a God, but, but man, it, it, the Hindu gods are all the same too, right? The God of Islam is the same God. We're, we're all, it, it's kind of all the same God. And as long as we're trying to be good people and not killing others, right? We're going to be okay. That is the prevailing view, I would say. That is kind of, that is the worldview of our society. Be as good as you possibly can to others, and you'll be relatively safe, you know, come judgment day, because God's a good guy. He'll let you in, you know. He's not, he's not that weird guy who only sends invitations to some people, right? It says Jesus was able to define truth for him and those around him by using God's word. He's God's word. It is he who is the author of the world that you see before you. And this is all throughout scripture, that Christ is the author of truth. Christ is the author of the universe. These are things he claims to be and his followers claim him to be. If Jesus was just a nice guy, as I said last week, if Jesus was just such a nice guy, then why did they crucify him? They crucified him because he said he was God. He defines morality, what is right, what is wrong, and how one goes to heaven. And, and, and this is something, guys, that I, I really wanted to emphasize. So I'm, I'm going I'm really, to take a step back. I'm not going to go through the quotes and the history of Unitarianism for you. I'm not going to do that like we've done in past weeks. I just want to tell you about the gospel. I want to tell you about the gospel. It would be the epitome of hatred for me to stand here before you and kind of tell you about other gospels and not tell you about the true one. It wouldn't be love, right? So I, I want to tell you about the gospel. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, as he declares in John fourteen six. Now, if we can wrap Scripture and make it look like Jesus, if we can warp Scripture and make it look like Jesus, if we, if we can warp Scripture and make it look like Jesus was just some other man, then we become equal to him. If, if we try to look at history and we try to look at Scripture and we try to warp and warp, well, he was just a really good example and he was just a really good teacher and really nothing else. He never claimed to be God. That means, that means, guys, if we are on equal playing field with God, right? If we can lower God from his throne who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we can lower him down to just another good teacher, that means that his claims we can also make. If we are equal to Jesus, the claims that he made about himself, we can make about ourselves. 
That means that since if Jesus is our equal and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, then I get to say, well, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I get to define truth. I get to define what's true for me. Isn't that postmodernism? I get to define what's true. It's not really truth. It's kind of relative. It's kind of, you know, it, it, it's abstract. Truth is just kind of what we believe it is in, in, in our own context. You see, if, if Jesus is equal to I am, I get to define truth. I get to define how we go to heaven. I get to define what life really is. This, this is the prevailing doctrine of Unitarianism, Universalism, and it's the prevailing doctrine of just... Random people who don't want to read the Bibles. It's a much better sell, isn't it? It doesn't matter matter what religion you have. It doesn't matter what worldview you adopt. You decide what's true for you. It's a much better sell. It's a much better way for us to make us feel good about the good decisions that we make. But it also helps us to feel good and reconcile the bad decisions that we make. I get to define what's true. I get to define how I get to go to heaven. I get to define what life is. With that, any and every way to God is true in so much as it points to a benevolent God, like a good God, you know? Because everyone wants to believe in a good God. Everyone wants to believe in a benevolent God. Everyone wants to believe in a God that loves them that has counted every single hair on their heads, that has a plan for them, that will never leave them. Everyone wants to believe, whether Christian or non-Christian. Everyone wants to believe somehow there, there is a good God out there. There's a benevolent being that actually cares about me and that's more powerful than I am. There's a God out there that actually cares about me when nobody else does. There's a God out there that actually has a plan. That all the the suffering that goes around in my world, that it's not just happening for no reason at all. There's a reason behind it because there is a God. Everyone wants to believe that. However, that standard of benevolent, powerful, merciful, loving, that perspective of God comes from here. No, no other religious text preaches that. They'll, they'll preach multiple gods. They'll, they'll give good stories on how to be a good person. But a God that would, that would show you mercy, a God that would extend grace to you, a God that seeks to know you and wants a relationship with you, a God that has counted every hair on your head, has captured every tear you have ever cried in a bottle, a God that has a plan for you that will never leave you, that is derived from this book. That is derived from God's holy word telling you these things about himself. So we love to accept that. If you believe that God is love and that God cares for you and knows you, that God has a plan for you, then you have gotten your perspective from God, from the Bible. So if that truth is to be adopted about God, if you are to have that perspective of a loving and all-powerful God, then you got to adopt all the other things that he says as well. Right? If we are going to hold that God is good and that he has a plan for you and that, and that he, he is a holy God and that there is paradise awaiting you, 
if we are to adopt that worldview, we have to adopt even the hard things that he says to. We have to be able to do that. Because knowing that about God's character, we know that even the hardest things that he tells us to do, man, it's going to have extremely, extremely powerful purpose. It's hard because scripture, as it reveals the character of God, guys, you know, because scripture is how we get our perspective of the God's character, his goodness, his loving, uh, all, all these aspects of who God is. We get it from scripture and it reveals God's character, but scripture also does something else to us. It reveals our character as well. Scripture reveals God's character, and we love to adopt that merciful, all-powerful, loving, caring God. But it also reveals things about our character. That we've rejected him. That we are rebellious. That we are dependent on him. Because the same passage in 1 John, the same exact passage in 1 John that says God is love, also says, in this love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. If we are to hold to this worldview that God is love, we also have to adopt the next verses that say, However, the life lived of love and receiving that love is dependent upon you clinging to the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you. So if we are to believe in an all-benevolent and loving God, we have to believe that he exercised that benevolence by sending his son Jesus to die for us, which false gospels like to reject because they want to believe that there's a good God, but they also want to believe that they're the ones that get themselves to heaven. What kind of God would leave us to our own devices to get to heaven? That's not a benevolent God, is it? Yes, God is love. Yes, we should love other people. But that love that is being talked about is made manifest by what Christ has done for us. By what Christ is doing in our lives. What Christ is currently doing, has done, and will do in the future. That means we must, if we are to be Christians, Christ followers, if we are to be loved by this God, if we are to be a part of his family, we must adopt Christ's worldview. It is Christ's atoning blood alone that has brought us into God's arms, that has brought us in to his adopted family. We must cling to him. We must. Left to ourselves, we will fail every time. But that's hard. If we are to adopt Christ's worldview, it's hard. If we were to accept God's love and his sacrifice for us, it's hard sometimes. It's easy to accept the free gift. It's hard to take his yoke upon us sometimes. It says right here, he's the one who said in Matthew 6, 24, you can't love God and money. 
He's the one who said that whoever wants to be first in the kingdom has to serve everyone else around him. It says that in John chapter 13. He's the one who said that if you're poor, if you're persecuted, if you are laid to the side and you are forgotten, blessed are you. He's the one who says that we must die to ourselves, pick up our crosses and follow him. It is a daunting call to be a Christian, guys. And if I wanted to fill a megachurch, I would tell you that nothing bad will ever happen to you if you come to Jesus. It is a daunting call to be a Christ follower. Oh, but man, it is worth it. <laughs> oh, man. It is a hard and difficult path to lead. Christ has led this amazing path for righteousness and I am to walk in it as his follower, as his son, as his adopted child. I'm going to walk in that name that he has called for me. But that does not exempt me from trials, from temptations, from hardships, from loss. Does not exempt me from that. It is a daunting call to be a Christian. So we would rather make our own truths. We would rather be our own truth, our own way, our own life. Truths that make us look moral and accepting. Truths that make me look upright and look righteous. Truths that make people worship me. Truths that make people think I'm a good person, that I'll do all these good deeds so I could put it on Instagram and everyone will think I'm awesome. Right? These truths, we, we, we like to adopt our own truths. We like to adopt our own laws, our own standards. It says in Romans 6, verse 20, it says, For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. That's a very interesting verse. You were slaves to sin, but you were free in regards to righteousness. You were slaves to your sin, you were free in righteousness. That means that, yeah, you're free to define what righteousness is. For a non-believer, they are free to make their own rules. Make their own code of what righteous is, what good is, what wrong is. They are free in regards to righteousness. For some of you, that means that you will spend your lives helping people. That means you will spend your lives full of charity and good deeds and good doing. If you're free in regards to righteousness, some of you in your good nature will use that freedom to better other people around you. However, you're also going to be a slave to sin. Meaning that when the time comes, when the sin you want to commit breaks the moral code that you have set for yourself, you will let yourself down. I've set my own standard of righteousness, and that's a good standard, and I, I, think I, I think I meet it pretty well. But if my sin tells me to compromise, I'm a slave to it. I'm going to do it. It doesn't matter what type of code I've set up for myself. It doesn't matter what type of righteousness, I'm a slave to that sin. But then it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22, it says this, For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a, is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. We are bondservants of Christ. We are free in regards to everything, but we are bondservants of Christ. And now it's super important that you follow along with me here. 
So this is going to be the essence of the gospel. Christ said that he came that you may have life and that you may have life more abundantly. He came so that the life you live and the life you experience would be far more abundant than that of anyone else around you. That life will be exciting. It'll be full of adventure. The Christian life is not supposed to be boring and monotonous. It's supposed to be full of constant excitement and new heights with the Lord. It's going to be hard, but man, it's going to be good. Christ says here in Luke 4, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind and to set the captives free. Jesus said, I have come to set the captives free. We are slaves to our sin. And it's the Holy Spirit alone that can war against our sin. It's the Holy Spirit alone that can take our sin and destroy it and get it out of our lives. But we can't have the Holy Spirit if we are not righteous. God's spirit cannot dwell in an unrighteous uh, vessel. And so Christ said, listen, I will take your unrighteousness. I will take your sin. I will clothe myself in your wickedness and I will destroy it on the cross so that you might wear my righteousness. I will give you my perfection. I will give you my adoption. I will give you the, you will be a co-heir of God's kingdom with me. I will give you everything that God has to offer you. And so because he has clothed us us in his righteousness, we get the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that is the seal and guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is who wars against sin in our lives. Now, if that was really confusing, because it is, to sum it up, essentially it's this. I constantly try to be like God and set my own standards of what is right. Since I am imperfect, I will break those standards. So I'm a slave to my imperfection. Christ died so that I might not be defined by my imperfection, but by his perfection. So that not only will he give me his perfection, his righteousness, but he will show me things within myself that he had always intended to be. That he is rubbing away all of the dirt that I've accumulated on myself. And he will show you what a great and wonderful vessel he has made in you. Christ has made you so beautifully. And sometimes we distort that image that he's made with sin. If I want Christ to save me, I, I must willingly lay down my desire to be God. If you desire Christ to save you, It requires you recognizing that he is God and you aren't. If I'm not God and Christ is, I must obey him. And he gets to define me. He gets to define truth for me. He gets to define life for me. He gets to define the way by which I attain salvation. He gets to be that. I do so with joy because his will, guys, is full of love depth and meaningfulness and adventure full of all these amazing things. If some of us were being honest, we haven't entirely experienced this. 
Jesus, when he was talking to the church, he was talking to a church in uh, Sardis. When he was talking to a bunch of churches in the area of Asia, Jesus said this to the church in Sardis. I want you to pay attention because this is something that I need to take upon. This is something I need to focus on. He says to the church in Sardis, he says, I know your works. That you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I know your works. You have this amazing reputation of being alive and being useful and being caring and being open-minded. You have this amazing reputation, but I know you. You are dead. You are dead. I know you. People see your reputation. People see what, what you want them to see. But Jesus, he knows you. And if I were being honest with myself, and if we were to be honest with ourselves, some of us at times feel dead inside. Feel dead. Outside you may have a reputation of being alive, but inside you're dead. What does it mean to be alive? In Galatians 2.20 it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ gave up his life so that I may live with God, right? Christ gave up his life so that you may live with him. And he, 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 now, he now lives. So as he died, I died to myself. I was nailed upon the cross with Christ and now it is the resurrected Christ and his spirit that lives and dwells in me and makes the decisions. I am not God. My, all my perceptions of Godhood were nailed upon the cross with Christ and now it is he who lives in me. All my desires to be God, all my desires to define truth, the way, the life is now forfeited so that Christ may be evident in my life. A dead church. What does it mean to be a dead church? What does it mean to be a dead Christian? A dead church is one that forsakes Christ also that they might look good and have their own morality and egos boosted by being accepting, by defining truth for themselves. All the while they rot inside because at the end of the day they're still slaves to their sin. A dead church is one that rejects Christ as its cornerstone, rejects Christ as his, at, at the center. And this might all seem just standard Christianese weird stuff. I'll, let me try to put it in, in better terms. My obedience to him is not based on any sort of morality or trying to be better than others. My obedience to him is that I might reflect him because he has changed my life. that Christ loves you despite anything you've done and that he's died for you despite anything that you've done and there's no sin, great or small, that will keep him from loving you and pouring himself into you, paying attention to you and wanting to build you up. But there's certain fruit in, in your life. There's, there's certain things that God wants to start in your life. There's, there's, there's crops that he wants to grow within your heart, but the soil is hard. And so I want you to picture this. I want you to picture this. 
I want you to picture a field. I want you to picture a field in which, in which seeds have been planted. That's salvation. And that the farmer wants to do amazing things in the life of the soil, in the earth. He wants to do incredible and amazing things. He wants there to be fruit. He wants there to be crops. He wants it to flourish and thrive. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about your life as that soil. I want you to think about your life as that ground that has, that has seeds planted in it. And God wants to make beautiful crops out of you. And as we walk, sometimes we will trample the soil of our heart. We will make it hard. We will make it rough. We will neglect it. God showed me this the other day as, uh, as I was spending time with him. And he, he showed me something really specific. And I want to impart this on to you because it really changed the way I look at things. It really changed the way I view God and I view my relationship to him. Because I want my life to be fruitful, don't you? You want your life to be full of good things. You want your life to be mean something, to benefit people. And so we know something, guys. We know that, that when things die and decompose into the ground, they create soil fertilizer for new life to grow. God showed me something very specific. He says that if you die to yourself, if you stop trying to be God, stop trying to call the shots, if you die to yourself, your dead body will act as fertilizer for fruit to grow. You allow yourself to die, your will to die, and you allow me to prevail in your life. If Zach Schellebarger dies, and if Christ lives in him, then his dead body will act as a soil, a fertilizer that provides growth to fruit. Brothers and sisters, your death will mark a new beginning. You dying to yourself, you deciding that you're not going to be God, you're not going to be the author of your own story, that you are going to allow God to dictate your life and decide what he wants for you, that you are going to obey him. That will be the beginning of new life and new birth. It'll be something so spectacular. The true gospel is this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You do this by dying. You do this by dying. Final illustration, if you guys will turn with me in John chapter 13, and then we'll close. John chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus is about to be crucified at this point in John chapter 13. He is about to go and be crucified and atone for all of man's sins. He's about to go into this. And you would think that at this point where he is about to die, that he would say, do you know what? I really want to be served right now. If you guys can just come alongside me and kind of comfort me, give me a pep talk. I'm about to go die for your sins. So could you please, could you please just pay attention to me? Tell me something nice about me. Can you encourage me right now, brother? Can you pray for me? Right? You think that God would be doing this, Christ would be entitled to something like this. But it says right here, Jesus, in verse 3, John 13, verse 3, it says this. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet 
to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I want you guys to picture this because back then, guys, no tennis shoes, right? No paved, nice sidewalks. So back then, everyone was walking around in sandals on dirt roads where livestock were just freely dropping whatever they desired, right? Livestock just freely, you know, going all along the roads. And so the disciples would be walking in all sort of animal excrement. Other than that, there was also not indoor plumbing. There was no concept that certain things were dirty and certain things weren't. So they kind of just took their bucket of them, right? Their bucket of who? Them. And just tossed it outside. And so this is the stuff that would be lacing the roads as people would just be walking to and from their, their daily activities. And so the disciples have been walking all day in all of this filth. And at the end of the day, it's supposed to be a slave boy who washes people's feet. They wouldn't even allow Jewish slaves to wash people's feet. They say that for Gentile slaves. Feet were so dirty and so disgusting that they wouldn't even allow Jew slaves to do it. They would have to have Gentiles do it. And Jesus took off his robes and put on a towel, knelt down, washed the disciples' feet, and all the filth and the dirtiness got on him. You guys see that picture? What did I say before? On the cross, he took all of your dirtiness. He took off of his righteousness and put on your dirtiness. He washed the disciples' filth. Guys, it it wasn't just kind of this weird, you know, washing feet, how we do it, you know, in... You know, you know, like, you know, at church, you know, like those youth group activities where everyone washes each other's feet, you know, wash the lint, sock lint off of people's feet, stuff like that. It's not like that. He is, get, he is getting dirty. He is covered in their filth. Covered in it. And, and, and Peter, you know, understandably says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards... You will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. You see, Peter knows how dirty this is. He knows how insane it is for Jesus to be washing his feet. Jesus, you can't be doing this to me. And Jesus says this. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. If I do not wash you, you have no part in who I am. And Jesus is saying the same thing to you guys, saying the same thing to me. If you do not allow me to wash you, you can't have a part of who I am. If you do not kneel down and humble yourself, you cannot be a part of me. If you do not allow me to wear your wickedness and take on your dirtiness, you cannot be with me. And then he says this, in verse, in verse 12, he says this, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example That you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, 
nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The Christian life is two-part. The true gospel is two parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that on this he hangs all the law of the prophets. This can be boiled down to allowing God to wash you clean, allowing God to understand you, allowing to be understood by God and understand who God is, being in unity with him, allowing him to cleanse you from your unrighteousness, allowing him to die for you, sacrifice for you, serve you, show you how amazing he is, show you how much he cares about you. That is the first part of the gospel. And the second part is to look at the people around you and say, how could I die as Jesus did? How can I lay down my life as Jesus has? I have been been bought with such a great sacrifice. How can I wash the feet of others around me? How can I serve them? How can I lay aside my convenience so that they might be lifted up? How can I sacrifice my finances so that they might thrive? How can I sacrifice my resources so that they might thrive? How can I sacrifice my time so that they might thrive? Some of us are just only in camp one where we have not, we have allowed ourselves to be cleansed and we have allowed ourselves to be saved and purified by God, but we have not extended that same grace to other people. And then some of us, we love to do work and we love to serve other people and we love to make them happy, but we have not allowed Jesus to come in and cleanse us and be one with us and help us. We fall into one of two camps. I I will confess to falling into the second one where I will do so much and I will try to help so many people, but I will neglect my personal relationship with Jesus to be loved by him, to be known by him. Some of you may be the opposite of me. Where you love to accept God's grace and, and go to church and just the music's playing and it feels so good and I love God's presence, but when it comes to serving and washing the feet of other people around you, you got better things to do. You got your life that you need to worry about. You got your schoolwork. You got your work. Let us lay down our lives as Jesus has. And let us, because we can't be a part of him if we don't allow him to wash us and pay attention to us either, right? So that's, that's, that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to take communion and we're going to worship and we're going to do those two things, guys. We're going to allow ourselves to be washed clean by the blood of Christ. We're going to allow ourselves to accept the sacrifice that he has made for us. And as we look at the example of communion and how he, his body was broken for our sins. His body was broken his, and then his blood was shed. He made the sacrifice so that we wouldn't have to suffer. And as we do that, we, we take upon his lifestyle as well. We sacrifice our convenience for others. We wash other people's feet. We help. We love. Amen? Lord, we, uh, we love you and we desire you tonight. We, God, I, I confess to being so caught up sometimes in all caught up in the works and the, and the details and the busyness of life. I, I get so caught up in all of these things that I will, I will neglect sitting in your presence and being washed clean by you. I will, I will not allow you to wash my feet as Peter has. 
some people in here have, have neglected, have allowed you to wash them and have allowed you to serve them and have allowed you to make them feel better about themselves and have allowed you to come in and transform their lives, but they have not extended that to other people. I pray that we would not be a dead church that rejects you, Christ, as the cleanser and rejects you as the example. God, but that we would be an alive church that lives by your spirit. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would help us with that tonight as we take communion. Lord, that we would remember the sacrifices you made and we would extend that to others. Help us with that, Lord. We desire you tonight. We, we desire your love and we worship you, raising up holy hands in your name. Lord, we love you. And we praise you. And it is in your name alone we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship, guys. Communion is here. Take it at your own leisure. Remember to take the bread first, the juice second, because the body had to be broken before the blood was shed. Amen? Amen.